If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 17 this morning. It's Luke chapter 17. It seems like these days, at least once a month, sometimes it seems like once a week, I hear someone say to me, in light of recent events, just look at what is going on around us. Surely Jesus is coming back soon. In their minds, all that is going on are signs of the time signaling Jesus' second coming into this world. We feel as if we are living in especially perilous times. Consider what one magazine article says. Quote, It is a gloomy moment in the history of our country. Not in the lifetime of most men has there been so much grave and deep apprehension. Never has the future seemed so incalculable as at this time. The domestic economic situation is in chaos. Our dollar is weak throughout the world. Prices are so high as to be utterly impossible. The political cauldron seethes and bubbles with uncertainty. Russia hangs as usual like a cloud dark and silent upon the horizon. It is a solemn moment of our troubles. No man can see the end. Sounds about right, doesn't it? But would it surprise you to know that was written in Harper's Magazine, published on October 10th, 1847? Not much has changed, has it? Over a hundred years and the same headlines that we see today are in place. Suddenly, we're forced to ask, are we really seeing signs of the times? Or perhaps we're just experiencing the, the normal tensions and sufferings that humanity has gone through over and over again in the last 100 to 150 years. Now, regardless of whether or not you think that you see signs of the times, how you think about the coming of Christ, His return to this world will affect how you live today. It will affect how you live now. But what I want to argue this morning is that rather than base your understanding of Christ's coming on outdated books and charts that go in and are revised and back in print year after year after year. Should we not, in fact we should, let Jesus tell us how to think about his return. We should let Jesus tell us how to live now as a part of his kingdom until he comes again. And the reason why I say we should do that is because as we have been making our way through Luke's gospel and come to chapter 17, beginning at verse 20, those are the very things that Jesus is teaching his disciples. This is what he taught them was 2,000 years ago, and this is what he wants to teach us today. So I encourage you to follow along as I begin reading Luke 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look over there. Do not go out and follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and be given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. 
Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who's in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night, there will be two... There'll be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpses, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of God for us this morning. May we hear it and believe. Now, as we've been working our way through Luke's gospel, we've already seen Jesus tell us about his kingdom, and here he continues to tell us more. But here he says, you need to think about the kingdom, especially in light of my saving work. In other words, you need to think about the kingdom of God in light of the fact that I came into this world and lived a perfect life, I died a perfect death for sinners on a cross, and then I rose back to life immortal forever, never to die again, and ascend it back to God. And I promise I'm coming again. In light of those redemptive events, we need to understand the kingdom of God. Jesus tells us what his kingdom will be like, when it will come, and how we should live in it in these verses. So as we begin to unpack and understand and apply his words, Jesus first wants to make sure that we understand the nature of God's kingdom. He wants us to understand the nature of God's kingdom. Just as in Jesus' day, there can be a lot of confusion about what the kingdom of God is. Unlike many other times, the Pharisees don't really seem to be trying to trick Jesus here. They seem to be asking a legitimate question about about when the kingdom might come. But even in asking that question, Jesus perceives they, they misunderstand completely. They don't really understand what the kingdom actually is. And so Jesus responds by telling them, first, the kingdom is not predicted by signs. The kingdom is not predicted by signs. Look again at verse 20. Jesus answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or over there. Now Jesus is touching a live issue for the Pharisees, along with many of the Jews in his day. You remember that at this time, Israel was an occupied nation. That is to say, they were, even though they had largely uh, self-governance over their own internal affairs as a country, they were ultimately ruled by the Roman Empire. Uh, they, they had been taken over and therefore uh, the emperor himself and, and whatever governing authorities he established above them were ultimately in charge of Israel and told them how they should live. Well, they didn't like this. I mean, who would? Nobody likes to live in occupied country with a foreign army and soldiers at every street corner making sure that you obey their rules. You, you want your freedom. <coughs> but Israel didn't have that. And so they had staked all of their hopes on the promises that God made in the Old Testament about his coming kingdom. And in their mind, what that meant was that God was going to come and drive Rome out of their land just as he had driven the Canaanites and the Philistines out in previous generations. 
Remember also that Luke had told us previously back in chapter 6 that one of Jesus' apostles was Simon the Zealot. Now, zealot usually means enthusiastic, excited. That doesn't mean that he was zealous for for, for being a disciple of Jesus. What, the, what that means is he was more or less a terrorist at one time. He, he, uh, the, the zealots were Jews that were so bent on getting rid of Rome and bringing about the kingdom of God, they, were, they would resort to violence to do it. They would, they would sneak up and take out a garrison of Roman soldiers and send a message to Caesar, we don't want you here. We don't want you here. And so, so this is, the, this is the, the kind of cauldron that's brewing. People have all these expectations about God's kingdom, and they're wrong, according to Jesus. He says, you're not going to be able to see the signs of God's kingdom the way you would another kingdom, right? So if another kingdom is coming, what are you going to see? You're going to see armies lining up and forming. You're going to see armaments and munitions gathering together. You're going to see a king uh, going out in front, leading his troops into battle, and and even, even for God, the Pharisees expected a spiritual revival to take place. Because it was more than just physical freedom. They thought physical freedom would bring spiritual freedom. That the religion in Israel would explode and people would come back to God the way they were supposed to. But Jesus says, that's not the way it works. My kingdom is not like Rome's. It's not even like David's. That's not what my kingdom is about. You cannot look and say, look, there's the, there's the kingdom. It's coming, it's coming. Look over there. He says there's no signs in that sense that will point to the coming of my kingdom. Why? Because the kingdom, though not predicted by signs, is present in the Son. That's the second thing Jesus tells his, his, the Pharisees here. The kingdom is present in the Son. Jesus says, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Now, here is the great but sad irony of the situation. Here are these Pharisees, and, and frankly, they fancy themselves, we've already seen this in Luke's gospel, uh, they fancy themselves as experts in reading the signs of the times. If they were alive today, they would be the guys on television with the shows about the prophecy hour. And, they, and they've got the newspaper headlines coming up. And they're pulling out books like Daniel and Revelation. And they're trying to, to line these things up. And they've got charts. And they're trying to tell you, look, this, this means Jesus is coming back. And this is going to happen. This is gonna... That, that's, what, that's what they were into. But it was not about Jesus' second coming. It was about the coming of the kingdom. What Jesus said previously in Luke and what he says here is, you think you guys are experts, but you don't have a clue. You're wanting signs of the kingdom and you are missing all of the signs right in front of you. Think about, what, think about the irony of this. Jesus has come. He is standing in front of them. He is the king. He is the king appointed for God's kingdom. And they're looking at him saying, hey, when's the kingdom going to come? And Jesus is saying, it's in your midst. You, 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 you're wanting signs and you've missed all the signs that God wants to give you. In my preaching, I have declared the gospel, the good news of the kingdom. In my healings of the sick, the lame, the blind, my forgiveness of sins, I have demonstrated the power of the kingdom. These are the signs that you should have seen, but you are blind to them. Open your eyes. The kingdom is already in your midst. That's what Jesus is telling them. Why? Because the king is there. 
Now, we've been talking kind of around the kingdom of God. We've kind of been destroyed, but what is it? We've not actually defined it. And that's because, frankly, the Bible doesn't give us, it doesn't ever say, this is the kingdom of God definition. It doesn't say that. Instead, it describes again and again and again in different ways. And if we take all of what the Bible says about his kingdom, then I think we cannot improve on a definition given by an Australian scholar and pastor named Graham Goldsworthy. Here's what he says. The kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's what the kingdom of God is. It is God's people in God's place under God's rule. So if it's the Garden of Eden before the fall, where Adam and Eve are dwelling in God's presence, obeying his commands, there was the kingdom. When it was Israel and Canaan, whether it's the church gathered by his spirit today across a thousand, thousand buildings, the kingdom is present if God's people are in his place living under his rule. And all of that comes to perfection in Christ. All of that. The Bible says that though Israel as a nation failed to be the servant that God wanted them to be, Jesus came and he was the perfect servant. He he was the perfect Israelite. More than that, he was the fulfillment of the temple where God's glorious presence dwelt in Israel. So God came as the perfect tent holding the glory of God in the midst of his people. More than that, John says he was the word made flesh, revealing the wisdom and instruction of God that his people might believe and obey. Therefore, all the kingdom is has come in Jesus. So that now if we have faith in Christ, we are part of God's kingdom. He is our king and we are his subjects. And that, of course, forces us to ask this question, isn't it? Are we really part of God's kingdom? And if so... Do we really live like it? Have we trusted in Christ? And is it clear by our life that we've trusted in Christ? Do we live as God's people in his place under his rule? Now, none of us can say, yes, absolutely, perfectly. I live as a citizen of God's kingdom. Why? Well, because the fullness of the kingdom is not here. I mean, let's just look to stop and everybody look around for a second. Look up, look down, look to the person next to you, to the left and the right, turn around, look at the person behind you. Is this heaven? I hope not, okay? I hope not, because if it is, I, I, I was misinformed about this deal, okay? Uh, we are told a new creation is coming, a new heaven and a new earth. We will dwell in the midst of God. There's not even a need for a sun because God is so glorious. He shines bright through all the universe. That's what I'm looking forward to. That's what I want, and we're not there yet, are we? And so we understand that the kingdom has come in Christ, but it is not yet fully here. Okay, so, so imagine if you've ever been up early, or perhaps you, you've been up late, and it's been dark outside, and suddenly as you've been awake, you've been near a window, or perhaps you've been driving somewhere, and you start to see that faint glow come over the horizon of dawn's early light. And that glow intensifies and suddenly it's, like, it's almost like it's, it's pulling around the earth because suddenly everything is getting brighter and you begin to see everything more clearly. And then before you know it, this intense light of the sun coming up over the horizon is here until it goes all the way to its apex in the middle of the day, illuminating everything on a clear sky. That's like the kingdom of God. In Jesus, the morning light is dawning. The, the, the glowing radiance of the kingdom has come, but it's not until his return that the sun will stand bright 
shining glorious over everything. Then we will see clearly. Then we will perfectly be God's people in God's place under his rule. But in the meantime, we struggle. We struggle because we we are part of the kingdom. We have his spirit. We've been drawn into the presence of Christ because of our faith in him. And yet, what again, we look around, what do we have? A sinful world full of sinful people in sinful circumstances. So we live in this tension where the kingdom is already here now, but it is not yet fully arrived. The now and the not yet of the kingdom. And so Jesus wants the Pharisees to understand to them, look, the kingdom is now, it is in your midst. But then he also turns to his disciples and wants them to understand, but the kingdom is not yet fully here. And therefore you need to know what to expect in the meantime. Jesus wants them to understand how they should live between the now and the not yet, between his first coming when salvation is secured and his second coming when salvation is given in its fullness. So this is the second thing they want to see. We've saw that we need to understand the nature of God's kingdom. Now we need to understand, we need to know how to anticipate the coming of God's kingdom. We need to know how to anticipate the coming of God's kingdom. It's here, but there's more to come. So what do we do? How do we live? How do we think about Jesus coming into this world again? We might ask it this way. What does Jesus expect us to do until he comes back? Three things. First, we should patiently wait for Jesus' return. We should patiently wait for Jesus' return. He said to his disciples in verse 22, The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, but you will not see it. Jesus is saying here that after he ascends to heaven, there will be times when, boy, the church just really wants him to come back. I mean, sometimes you just, you have those days, you have those weeks, you have those life experiences, and you're just praying, Lord, why, why can't you just come today and put an end to all this mess? Well, well, well why, can't you, why can't you come back today, this very moment, and put an end to the pain that is in the world and in my life? That's why the first Friday of every month, we, we invite our members to fast and pray for Christ's return, just as he told us to do, to just show that we long for him to come more than anything in this world world. And, and he says, specifically, we're long for the days of the Son of Man. Now, what does that mean? What, what, what are the days of the Son of Man? Well, remember, this was one of Jesus' favorite ways of referring to himself. He didn't really call himself the Messiah. He was, but he knew people had a lot of confusing ideas about who the Messiah was. So he called himself a lot the Son of Man because people thought, well, we don't really know a whole lot about that. We know where it's from. It's from Daniel. But what does that mean? What does it mean that you're the son of man? Well, Daniel has this vision. You might remember in Daniel chapter 9, he says this, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. There it is. Who is the son of man? What did he do? He came to the ancient of days, that's God the father, and was presented before him. And to him, to the son, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. 
So the Son of Man comes into God's presence, and what does God do? He hands over the reins of power to him. He gives him a kingdom that will encompass all things and will never pass away. And Daniel sees all of humanity, a a, a subset of, of all of creation, worshiping and serving him. And now Jesus has come hundreds of years later, and he says, I'm the Son of Man. I am the Son of Man. I am the one who will triumph over every rebel power and reign supreme in righteousness over all things. How does he do that? He first defeats the reign of sin and death on the cross through his resurrection so that a people will be saved from their sins for God. But then as he goes away, he promises he will return and he will fully and forever establish God's kingdom in the world bringing his people into his glorious presence and shutting out and judging those who have turned away and enjoyed their sins. So Jesus says for God's people, for those that love him and trust him, there's going to come a point where he's saying, I just want that day to come. I want that day to come. And we will be tempted. We will be tempted to believe people when they say, look, Jesus is here. Look, the kingdom's there. Look, he's already back. He's here. And he says, but do not go out or follow them. You know, when I was... um, Gosh, I don't even know when it was now. You get 37 and your mind just goes. But uh, years and years ago, remember that, that, that there was, um, well, there's been several, haven't there, sadly, that there was the, uh, the UFO cult where it was like, you know, we're all going to go out here and live on this mountaintop and we're going to wait for this UFO to come and take us away. It didn't happen, right? Then there was a cult in Waco where someone said, I, I'm Jesus. And they all followed him out there. And what happens? They, they, they all wind up being killed. And before that, in my, when I was a little, little tyke, my, my dad's generation remembered, there was a guy named Jim Jones who brought everybody down to, to, to a, a, a foreign country and said, I'm Jesus. And so Jesus told us, this is going to happen. Don't believe it. So even a guy down in South America now who claims to be Jesus. And people are flocking because they think it's him. And he says, don't believe it. People say, look, there he is. There's the Son of Man. He says, don't don't go after them. Be patient. My return is certain, but it's not going to be quick. Don't be tempted into thinking that you've missed it. Now, some make problems worse because they teach that Jesus will come back twice. Once in secret and once in public. So something happens and people are wondering, well, maybe that was it. Maybe we missed it. And, and, and the new movie, Left Behind, along with infamous oldies like The Thief in the Night, look to passages like this one to advocate that kind of belief. Jesus says in verse 34, I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken away and the other left. There will be two women grinding wheat together. One will be taken and the other left. And they say, see, look, Jesus is going to come back in secret. Nobody's going to know it. Just half the population is going to be gone. And the world's going to be left in chaos. Well, there's two problems with that idea. When we think about what Jesus is saying here, first of all, let's just be clear. Jesus never says here whether the people taken are being taken to glory or being taken to judgment. All it says is that they're being taken. And considering that judgment is the theme of this passage, Jesus could just as easily be saying when he returns, people will be taken out to be judged from this world. It could be interpreted either way, but more importantly... The language is just a few verses behind Jesus saying, don't believe stories about a secret return. Listen to what he says, verse 24. As the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. Now, have you ever been through a really bad lightning storm? Uh, several years ago, we were going down to the, our denomination's annual meeting in Orlando, Florida. And uh, it, was, it was late at night. It was like 10 or something. And it was, it, was already, it was already pitch black dark. And we hit, as soon as we hit the Florida border, it was like a wall of rain. 
Uh, I'd never seen anything like that before in my life. So I had the blinkers going on high. I had the, def- the defogger going on high and uh, just crazy. And then the lightning came and I remember all the kids were just in the back and I'm like white knuckling and, you know, Melinda's like rubbing my back trying to keep me calm. And I'm just like, ah, live, live, I want to live, you know. And, and at one point, this, this massive lightning comes down and I thought it was noon. I mean, just all around, just this kapow, but the light was like, whoa, it's daytime again. And then it all went away. I mean, it was amazing. You ever, you ever been through something like that? Well, well Jesus is saying, that's going to be like when I come back. It's not going to be like, well, was that really him or not? What happened? Uh, you know, what, 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 what was that? It's not some cheap movie effect. Everyone will see, everyone will know when Jesus comes back. It will be obvious and it will be glorious. Therefore, in your patience, do not be taken in when someone promises secret knowledge of his return or some false pronouncement that can't be verified. You just wait patiently. You know when he comes back, every eye will see and every ear will hear and know Jesus is back and he is king. Jesus says we must wait patiently for his return, but secondly, we must constantly value his redemption. We must constantly value Jesus' redemption. We see this in verses 25 through 30. The fullness of the kingdom will come, but, he says, verse 25, first the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by his generation. Now, why must he suffer and be rejected? Because that's why he came. From the beginning, God's plan has been to send Christ to deal with our sin and our rebellion. I know some of you are here from our Rock the Block uh, program over at Banger Downs, and we talked about this while we were there. Remember, God made everything great. He created the whole world. And who messed it up? We did. Because God said, this is how you should live. And we said, nah, I don't think so, God. I don't trust you. I don't, think you, I don't think you're all that. I don't think you're really as smart as you think you are. I think I want to do this over here. And the problem was sin. That, that one act of rebellion brought sin into the whole world. So now we have all kinds of, of, of evil in the world. I mean, you, you cannot help but read the headlines or watch them scroll across the screen to say, what, what kind of world are we living in? It's a world of our own making. When, when, we, when we say we don't want to follow God's rules, then this is the mess that we make of things. But God still loves us, despite our sin. He loves us and he wants to save us. He wants to bring us back into fellowship with himself. And so he sent Christ to come and to live a perfect life that we can never live and then die as a perfect sacrifice in our place. We deserve to be uh, rejected. We deserve to, to suffer. But God did that for us. He suffered God's wrath and was rejected by him on the cross. God looked at his own son and counted him. He treated him like he was the worst sinner in the world. He treated him like he was us. But then he raised him back to life. And what he tells us in raising him back to life is that Jesus satisfied, he fulfilled the wrath of God against all the sins of his people. So that when we trust in Jesus, God says, your punishment has already been dealt to my son and therefore I can forgive you because you've trusted in me. That's what the rejection is about. That's what the suffering is about. It's about winning redemption for sinners. And here's the thing, Jesus suffered rejection in his day and notice what does he say? He's still going to be rejected in the day of the Son of Man when he comes back. In other words, between his first coming and his second coming, Jesus is constantly going to be rejected. Nothing's changed in the last 2,000 years. Now, some people reject Jesus in hostile ways, right? They get angry. They don't want to hear about him. And they get mad when you talk that religion stuff. 
But let's be honest, that's not the main way people reject Jesus. The main way is simple, cold indifference. They just don't care. Don't get mad about Jesus. They just don't care about him. Hey, yeah, okay, die on the cross. Yeah, I got it. Okay. It means nothing. It means nothing. And in fact, I think that's the point Jesus makes when he brings up Noah and Lot. Listen again to what he says, verse 26. Just as in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. When he comes back, there will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. And on that day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So it will be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Judgment was coming into the entire world in Noah's day and many years later to the cities in which Lot settled. But in both cases, people were absolutely oblivious to what was happening. You notice the point here is not the sinfulness, right? There's nothing wrong with eating and drinking and buying and selling and planting and building. We do that all the time. But his point is they didn't know what was coming. It was completely unexpected. They were living normal lives. I mean, as I'm preparing this sermon, I'm thinking about this. It's, it's September. How can we not draw the parallel to to September 11th, 2001. I mean, you, you go back and you watch the, the clips from those morning shows like Today and Good Morning America, and they're just going on like business as usual. They're interviewing celebrities. They're taste testing food. They're giving you uh, fashion and weight loss tips. You, you, you watch the, the, the newsreel footage of, that's not really newsreel, it's actually documentary footage. Those two French guys that were following the, the, the New York City Fire Department and, and this rookie, and, and, and they're out having you filming on the streets right as the, the first tower is, is impacted. And, and, and they're there and they're filming people, and, and you know what you see? Normal life. People going to work. Some people going to work late, running with their briefcase in hand. Others stopping to get their coffee. Kids getting off the school bus, walking into schools. Uh, taxi cabs sitting there waiting for a fare. It's just normal life. And then suddenly disaster happens. And Jesus says, it's going to be the same thing when he comes back. People are going to be completely indifferent to him. They're going to care less about the gospel of Christ. They're just going to be going upon their business. And rather than being innocently caught in an act of terror, they're going to receive the deserved righteous judgment of God that we poured out on all humanity. But some... Some will be going about their business not indifferent, valuing, loving, treasuring the gospel of Christ. And when he comes back unexpectedly, suddenly they will receive the glory of salvation. There'll be no warning, no signs, just an immediate unveiling of Christ. And so we cannot take the cross too seriously. It's not possible. It's not possible to, to take Jesus too seriously, to make too much of him. He is the focus of all that God is doing. We can't be indifferent to him. We can't just blow it aside as maybe one option among many religions in the world. No. God says it's him or nothing. We either believe and live or we perish. And that leads us to the final way that Jesus says we should anticipate his coming kingdom. Between the now and the not yet, we should faithfully live for Jesus' reward. We should faithfully live for Jesus' reward. Verse 31, on that day, that is on the day of Christ's second coming. On that day, let the one who is on the housetop <coughs> with his goods in his house not come down and take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. 
Now, maybe you don't know the story of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. Maybe you don't know about Lot's wife. Let me just remind you that Lot and his family were living in the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And right before their eyes, fire literally fell from the sky in judgment on that place. The, the towns were completely destroyed because of their, their sinful wickedness. The angels sent to destroy that town, though, because of God's promise to Abraham and his love for Abraham. Go to his nephew Lot and say, you got to get out. Judgment is coming. And so Lot goes to his future sons-in-law who are going to marry his daughters and say, come on, we got to go. Judgment's coming. And they think he's drunk. They think he's joking around. They're like, yeah, whatever. And, and, and they close the door on him. And so Lot comes back to the house and he's a little bit frustrated, a little bit dismayed. He's not sure. And, 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 and the angel's like, come on, we got to go. And, and he's just seen the incredible wickedness of this city as the men of the town have come out and tried to, to, to physically and, and immorally abuse these two angels, these two strangers in the house. And yet even in light of that sin, it says that Lot hesitated. They're saying, come on, judgment is coming. We, we, we got to go. We got to run out of here. God has been kind and he's held it off till dawn, but the hour is coming. And, and, and finally, they physically grab Lot, his wife, and his two daughters and literally start to drag them, running them out to the wilderness away from the town. And they tell them, flee the coming judgment and do not look back. But Lot's wife looked back. She couldn't imagine life in the wilderness over against life in a wealthy city. She couldn't leave behind all of her possessions and be prepared to, to start over. She couldn't let go of the city, even in the face of horrible sin. And so, because of her disobedience, the judgment of God fell on her as well. Fiery sulfur reduced her body to a pillar of salt. And Phil Reichland wisely comments, she was destroyed not because of where she looked, but because of what she loved. Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. And those words ring loud in my ears. Many, many years ago when I was about nine or ten, I was with my dad. We were driving to the car somewhere. And I don't even remember how the conversation came up, but he was telling me about this sermon that he heard called, Remember Lot's Wife. And, and he talked about how, the, how you know, every few minutes the preacher would just, would just stop and say, Remember Lot's Wife wife. And, and, and the point that my dad was trying to teach me was the same point that pastor was teaching that sermon. And that is when you come to Jesus, you never look back. You, you never look back. You're all in. You realize that nothing, nothing is more important to him. So you don't look back longingly at the sin you left behind, at, at the inappropriate relationships and, the, and the, the, the greed for things that you don't need and say, yeah, but boy, that stuff was, that stuff was so good. Jesus is saying, that leads to death because it shows you don't really love Jesus. It shows that you love his stuff. And Jesus is saying the same thing. He's warning the disciples, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. That, that is the, the paradox, the seeming odd contradiction of Christianity. If in this life you are trying, you say, I want Jesus, but I want my stuff too. I want my old life. I want to live the way I've always lived. Then Jesus says, you're going to lose it all. Because this world is coming to an end, it will all go away and you will face judgment. Because the reality is you don't really love me. You say you do, but if you still love your stuff, you don't really love me. Be willing to give up your sin. Be willing to, to give up your past and, and, and start fresh and follow me. But here's the thing. If you give up everything for God in this life, no problem. Because he gives you everything you could have possibly imagined. Everything good for you in the life to come.
He gives you not just physical life, but eternal spiritual life with him forever. The disciples were obviously shocked and dismayed by all of this. It's not what they were expecting Jesus to say about the kingdom. But they're also confused. Jesus is speaking with vivid imagery about not turning back to one's house or city. So they're thinking about a specific place like, well, where? Where, Lord? That's what they ask. Where's all this going to happen? And Jesus has this very cryptic reply, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now, what does that mean? It's like he's gone all Edgar Allan Poe on us or something. Uh, what, what is he talking about there? And there, you know, you pull out commentaries and just like five, six, seven interpretations. And um, so, you know, you can go consult those and see if you can come up with something better. But here's what I think Jesus is saying based upon everything else in the text. I think when you go out and you're driving or whatever, you see vultures circling around. What do you know is on the ground? Something dead, right? I mean, that, that's what they're there for, Right. And, and, and so I think what Jesus is saying is, likewise, when I return, when the judgment comes, it's too late to do anything about it. You, you can't run and, and hide. You, you can't escape it. You can't say, oh, I'm sorry, Jesus, I want to get saved. He says, no, no, no. You're going to see the vulture story. It's too late. When, 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 when the Son of Man flashed across the sky like lightning, it's over. It's done. There's nowhere to go, nothing to say, no decision that is to be made. Now the judgment has come and all of humanity is going to be divided in that moment. Spouses, friends, business partners, the return of Jesus will divide everyone. There will be those who will experience the reward of forgiveness and life and joy because they had faith in Christ and were willing to let everything go, even their own life for his sake. But there will be those who experience judgment and suffering justly because they loved their sin, they rejected Christ, and they felt completely at home in this wicked world. And Jesus says, make sure you're living for the right thing. Make sure you're not living consumed with everything going on in this world. If, if, if your neighbor who is not saved looks just like you and how they spend their money and how they spend their time and what kind of dreams they have, then you've got a problem if you think you're a Christian. You've got a big, big problem. Jesus says you need to live for the reward that I'm going to give. Not, not, not a reward because you were so good you earned salvation. No. No, the free gift of eternal life through faith in Jesus. That's what's being offered to us today. Over the years, so many people have speculated and predicted about the return of Christ. They've made timetables and charts, and they've even said specific dates. But Jesus wants his disciples to know no matter how much they long for his return, they should not buy into those things. There's no signs other than the Son of Man himself. And when he returns, it will be obvious and glorious. It will be so different from his first coming, which was marked by humility and suffering. And our greatest temptation between that now and that not yet is to grow indifferent towards his suffering, indifferent towards his rejection, indifferent towards the salvation, the redemption that he won for us. And to live like those in the day of, of Noah and Lot, like those all around us, doing whatever they please, not caring about Jesus. But we've got to remember that, that the kind of life that pays no attention to the gospel has grave consequences. Because it shows where our heart really is, and it's not with God. And it will be judged for its sin. Don't lose your life then. Jesus says, lose your life now. Look to him. Be willing to give up all your sin to gain everything you possibly have with God in Christ. Trust him. Trust him. Look to him in faith. The reality is, if we want to be part of God's kingdom, we've got to ask ourselves, are we part of his people living in his place under his rule? If the answer is no, I've got great news for you this morning. 
God is ready to receive you into his kingdom. God doesn't say, well, I'm not sure. I mean, are you going to be good enough? I mean, what, what, why should I let <clears throat> No, that's, that's not the way it is at all. He, he, he is pleading this morning, turn from your sins. Turn from death. Look to my son. He died in your place. He gave his own life. He longs to be your king and give you a life of joy and forgiveness and salvation with me. That's the stance that God has towards us through his son this morning. He is not willing that any should perish. So look to him and believe. Find in Jesus a savior for your soul, a savior for your sins, and a satisfaction for your soul. He is coming back and we must be ready. All of eternity rests on whether or not we are part of his kingdom now. Father, I pray that we would not take lightly this, this word from Christ. God, both in our believing and in our doing, Father, as the church, we can, we can become so calloused and so hardened and so indifferent, not for our own salvation, but for the salvation of others. That we fail to share, we fail to, fail to, to reshape our life into, a, into a, an attitude of disciple-making, always looking to help God's people mature and those that are not God's people come into His kingdom through saving faith in Christ. God, help us not be indifferent, rather in our sin, our sin of commission or our sins of omission, our sins of active rebellion and our sins of laziness to serve the way that we should. Father, help us to show our love and the joy that we have in Christ by living the way he calls us to until his return. Father, this is our prayer and we ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.